I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. Russian-American writer Anastasia Edel joins me today. She is author of the powerful New York Times op-ed, The Tired and Poor Who Make America Great, which contends that, as long as the Statue of Liberty stands, it renders Donald Trump an imposter. As well as author of Lightning Guides edition, Russia, Putin's Playground, Empire, Revolution, and the New Tsar. Like many things in Russian history, privatization was started with good intentions. It ended in rigged bids, bribes, violence, and dubious interpretations of the law, Edel writes. The dizzying rate at which Russian oligarchs have been amassing wealth is a double-edged sword, fearing that their riches might vanish just as swiftly as they appeared. Many have turned to politics. She has concerned herself most recently with the Trump administration's betrayal of a compassionate American immigration policy. She writes that we should be watchful of what comes next. Any society that starts down the path of marginalizing certain groups will eventually need new targets. Welcome. A pleasure to have you here, Anastasia. A great honor. Thank you. What I just said in the intro, isn't that borne out exactly in Vladimir Putin? Why is he still at the helm? Because he's afraid of what he might lose, which was a country really devoted to, to his and his well-being and his wealth and his power. But are Russians beginning to recognize that the power of that representation is largely felt with Putin and not the Russian people at large? Well, there were, were recently protests in Moscow um, where people took it to the streets and demanded a very simple thing, that their candidates should be put on the ballot to the election of the Moscow State Duma. That was not a violent process. Nobody was uh, doing anything remotely similar to what you're witnessing perhaps in Hong Kong. But those protests were pretty violently crushed. And uh, the thing about uh, authoritarian system is that they, uh, get really upset about any show of uh, people's will. And this is what dictators and authoritarians fear. So no matter how little the discontent or the expression of that will might be, uh, it will be subverted pretty ruthlessly if you're in a country like Putin's uh, Russia. And this is what we have witnessed in Moscow. But as far as, you know, what's, is there an equivalence between Putin's, uh, between Putin's Kremlin and Vladimir Putin and the Russian people? I don't think so. Just as there is no equivalence between President Trump and the American people. You know, Russia is a huge country. But of course, what we see is what comes out of the Kremlin and of the, out of the official sources. And uh, the, the reality is more nuanced and, and, and different. And uh, it's interesting that with Russia is that just when you least expect it, you know, nobody expected this uh, election to the local uh, Moscow state parliament to bring any surprises, but it did. But why? Because opposition candidates were denied uh, not the victory, they were just denied the right to run. And, uh, and people were upset. 
is that marginalization something that you recognize as, as having a derivation in, in, in Russia at all? Or do you think that what's developing in the United States is just this kind of global resurgence of populism and xenophobia? I think it is both, but if you look at um, dictatorships uh, way back, going back in history, you will see that the tactic of uh, polarization of society is creating internal enemies, and this is where it starts. And, you know, coming from USSR, I've seen it uh, done uh, on a grand scale when there was, and they, uh, you know, the, the marginalization was simple. There is us and there is them. And um, if you're not with us, you're against us. And so this was a pretty uh, binary situation. Now, in Russia, Vladimir Putin, um, it was very strange to witness the return of uh, something from USSR, which I thought, as a child of perestroika, we have buried for good. Um, Russia in 2000 was, a, was not USSR. It was uh, an heir to an empire, but it was a country which was sort of taken steps towards a democracy, and it was a democratic experiment. Uh, but what uh, happened with Vladimir Putin, uh, you probably remember that the very early in his presidency, in fact, before his presidency, uh, there was this series of apartment bombings in right. Moscow that were immediately attributed to the um, Chechen um, terrorists, and um, that has not been proven. In fact, other things have come out uh, about who was involved in this. But the fear among the people is a very powerful motivator uh, to, uh, to, to evaluate different courses that, is open, uh, that are being offered for them. And the course that Vladimir Putin wanted for Russia was um, lifting Russia off its knees, right? So which means that somebody has put Russia on, the knee, uh, on its knees, right? And it's in, it wasn't the, uh, you know, the oligarchs. It was, it, uh, it, although that came, that went to that really quickly. Um, we've seen it with the Hordarkovsky uh, situation. But so the Chechens were singled out as uh, potential terrorists that, uh, you know, would subject Russia to violence. And then over the years of uh, Putin's interminable stay in power, multiple communities, uh, multiple groups rather, were singled out and, um, and ostracized. And, you know, we've seen it with the LGBT community. We'll, uh, we, and now it's generally the liberals. The liberals are the foes of great Russia. And uh, the guilt uh, for Russia's uh, dire economic situation of the 90s. I was there, you know, I remember it, how bad things were when the country was transitioning from uh, socialist economy to the free market. Uh, the blame is now assigned to liberals and to democracy in general. They have brought chaos to Russia, not the privatization that you mentioned in the beginning of in the introduction and not, uh, you know, this huge inequality that what was created virtually overnight, but uh, some groups of people that should be blamed. And so once you start down that road, um, anybody can uh, become a potential target. Uh, I think what, what you said 
about how our people are not synonymous with our political leaders is so salient and especially true with the American and Russian examples today. What I see with America is that we are trending towards authoritarianism. There is obviously a big... Um, democracy is no longer what used to be an American identity, uh, a forepost of world democracy, is no longer a, a criteria. Uh, we, you know, I hear about some studies that are done that we don't have to live in a democracy. Autocracy is fine, but it's but it's not fine for many reasons which uh, we can talk so about. But so I see that there is a trend from uh, an, a country where everybody is equal and where decisions are made democratically trending towards uh, authoritarian uh, power. And that is very alarming because yes, what comes with it can be crony capitalism and, and whatnot. Uh, but I think my hope is that America is much is not as far on that road as Russia has come in 20 years, uh, even more if you count the beginning of privatization and creating those real the first wave of oligarchs in the early 90s. Um, I don't think we are there, and my hope certainly is that um, this would not happen. But the problem with trending uh, towards authoritarianism is, is that what comes with it is also nepotism. If the if this if America stops being a meritocracy, like it has always been, or at least uh, that's how we perceived it out there mm -hmm. um, in the old country, then um, the danger is that eventually uh, you're going to slip into what. Lenin, you know, called the government of cooks. Andrew Jackson called that the spoil system. But I think there's something more pernicious going on, dismantling of compassion. And you're absolutely right. Uh, there is definitely um, an attack of uh, an attack on what uh, we all cherish. Uh, all of us who came here at some point, newcomers like me, fairly, you know, I've been here 20 years or generations ago. There are certain things that we held sacred, and um, even I, who grew up beyond, behind the Iron Curtain in USSR, knew about the Statue of Liberty and the poem Hammered to its Pedestal and the light that shone on arriving boats. And so there was always this dream. Uh, when you live in a state of injustice, which USSR was, um, there is a place where you can make it and pursue happiness. You'll, as long as you play nicely to others, work hard, um, you will be treated equally with everyone else and you will get the right to pursue it. And you would not, it doesn't matter whether you uh, are rich or poor or healthy or not. So I knew about that. And so to me, it's emblazed in my head, you know, and no matter what other people say, this is what I believe my America is. So when I read um, Cuccinelli's remarks, you know, I wasn't planning to write that op-ed at all. In fact, I was in the middle of finishing a big writing project uh, that uh, Monday, and when I do that, I uh, don't read the news because I want to be sane. Uh, <laughs> but then my mother called me, my mother-in-law called me, and they all said, have you seen the monstrous green card rules? And I'm like, okay, no, I haven't, so let me go check. And I started reading, and I read the Russian news, the European news, and the American news, because I always do that to get sort of like a less partisan picture. And 
you know, what his remarks that we should probably think of this poem in a different way. People should be able to stand on their on two feet, which is oxymoronic, right? If you're tired and poor, it's not a determinant. But um, so that we should augment it that way. What it struck me, it's really an extension on the attack on truth and fact that seems to be the only consistent policy that's coming out of this administration. Uh, it's now extended to America's most enduring symbol, but it is there. We, we can see it with our own eyes, and it proclaims that America will treat you equally. It actually wants the tired and the poor to come and give them shelter. And so we are a nation of immigrants. Uh, that's another that's a nickname that America has around the world, a nation of immigrants. But now what we're witnessing, other than a, a historic, revisionist history. historical revision right. of a grand proportion, which I normally associate with a country like Russia that cannot stop rewriting its own past, is uh, this strange dynamic when a country of immigrants is at war with immigrants, which if you extend logically, it's a country at war with itself. And that is, you know, it still blows my mind that we're talking about America and uh, not some other place, but it is what it is. Is it possible we are getting more xenophobic and, and the Russian people are actually democratizing? Think about it this way. I mean, here in the United States, you can still go on the street and protest and do whatever you want. You know, most people just, you know, like on Facebook and right. um, and do that sort of, it's still a very early stage, but you know, there was Women March, there were certain uh, street um, actions right. that um, were, would give people the right to work. In, in Russia, these people are getting real prison terms. They are all people who were not, they were not protest even leaders. They were opposition candidates who wanted to get on the ballot. There's they, no First Amendment. I mean, there's yeah. really no there were, freedom of exactly. assembly. I've witnessed it every way. You know, yeah. I grew up when USSR was still standing and Perestroika happened when I was 15, 16, 17. So it, it kind of formed me and you witnessed this incredible revival and awakening of a, of a nation's consciousness. It was truly tremendous and um, you realize that, you know, Russians by, definitions are, by definition are not prone to totalitarianism, they were forced into it. But then all of that fell apart and we emerged as a very different nation uh, and we took some good, I believe that there were certain good things in the USSR, at least an attempt at good things, like internationalism, for instance. You know, we were, uh, you know, in the vein of uh, proletarian, proletarians of all countries unite. Uh, we were all supposed to be um, internationalists, and we were given this one identity, the super identity of the Soviet person, uh, and were encouraged to give up our ethnic identity, though, you know, they never quite uh, got it right because there was a passport entry where you were either Russian or Jewish or Armenian or whatever. But um, this sort of idea of uh, all of us being citizens of uh, a larger, not, not of a geography, but of an idea was present in USSR. And, uh, but what we witnessed with Putin's arrival was this really the subversion of this idea. I mean, this whole um, slogan that he had when he came 
lifting Russia off its knees. Uh, Russia, it's Russia, right? Now it's great Russia. Uh, and so this is very uh, different. Again, uh, I have never really, uh, growing up in USSR, no, did not really, I, I mean, I knew I was Russian, but I didn't identify myself in, you know, um, as a Russian. We were Soviet people. And now, of course, USSR is gone, but uh, the resurgence of nationalism in Russia under Putin is, is uh, very, very clear. And of course, it's, uh, you know, the thing about nationalism is it's something that is easy to give to people. It doesn't cost you much. You just start, hey, be proud because you're Russian. Be proud because you're American. That, it's not a plausible scenario at this point. About that, political reform in Russia? About whether or not this next generation can trigger reform that would overthrow, if not Putin, a set of repressive qualities that are now the norm there. Repression is never the, the norm. Even people who grew up with just Putin would never um, be, uh, be able to accept this reality uh, of a repressive state. And I grew up in, so in USSR. Uh, what happens to you is that you think it's endless. Like when USSR uh, collapsed, it was a shock for everyone, including ourselves, because literally five years ago, it, it seemed like that it would never end. But you never get used to it. You never get used to repression, to injustice, and it's so it simmers. So at some point, uh, it boils over. But I think in Russia, you know, change always comes from the top. You know, had it not been for Gorbachev who decided to, um, um, or Khrushchev who decided to uh, liberalize the country just a little bit to make USSR better, both of them tried, then, you know, who knows where it uh, would have uh, gone. But my hope is that these people who are growing up today, they're very, they're very cosmopolitan, very Western. I mean, they're not like me. They don't know what USSR was other than from some propaganda films that they might be shown. But um, they are, a lot of them are very close to a Western viewpoint. And, but, you know, that of course is the question, what is the Western viewpoint? Right, what is right, it? exactly. What is the West? Because that used to be but a When constant. you say it always comes from the top or from economic circumstance that yeah. embroil the top, that means that, you know, as with Trump's re-election and some people's observations, it is economic catalysts that are going to trigger reform uh, because it's not going to come from, from Putin uh, <laughs> stepping aside honorably, right? And, no. and that's what, what Amy Knight said on this air, which is, what does he have to lose? Everything. I mean, if, if a new regime comes to power to expose criminality, malfeasance, crony capitalism, corruption. Um, so, you know, in effect, th there is the endless vision of him as head of state for life. Um, it, of course, Trump would like to actualize that here. Um, and he makes statements uh, that, that are, in effect, him fantasizing about having powers that he doesn't have because of that sacred constitution here. How can we try to avert what might be a further exacerbation of that kind of rhetoric? I think we just have to call it out and stand up to it because this rhetoric doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Um, you know, there is a tactic of... Um, 
raising up the society's temperature. It, that's how we, it's a translation from Russian. But you throw out this uh, extraordinary uh, statements and people get all worked up. And it doesn't matter, you know, it could be purchase of Denmark, uh, I'm sorry, of Greenland, or um, it could be anything. Uh, and um, this drives us to react in certain way. People are jittery, and I think that's what this administration is really good at, is uh, raising our collective fever. And uh, we should uh, remember that this is a tactic, right, and not, and try in as much as possible not uh, participate in that. But also, uh, I think it is important to understand what you just said, that uh, the majority doesn't think this way. But it's never the majority. I mean, look at radicals that, uh, that seized power in uh, Russia in 1917. Was Lenin the majority? What the Bolsheviks never heard of, nobody heard of them, you know, months before the revolution. And they, they hijacked the entire country and held it hostage for uh, over 70 years. So it's, but it is important uh, to have this discourse in, as a civilized discourse. And one of the things I've done before I, you know, wrote my op-ed, I was reading the news at the time and I always go and I read the comments, you know, and that particular news article about the new rules generated like two and a five, uh, two and a, uh, 2,500 comments. So I was clicking through them and seeing what are the arguments mm -hmm. for and against and very clearly you see that the majority and you know maybe times readership is biased right. but the majority of the people were appalled uh, and there were certain arguments against you know certain arguments like oh well we should take care of our own people first and then kind of extend the welcome we to are our own people. But, um, right we are our own people these are legal immigrants you know i've right. seen them coming to this country and um every now and at times ending up needing public assistance, but that's not because they're freeloaders or you don't want to get public assistance. I think also the problem is that that is the majority viewpoint and it's not embodied in the political identity that is going to elevate it um, and, and that's going to um, kind of reimagine America for today with that discourse. I mean, poets don't have the same cachet that they once did, but it, you know, we need, we need uh, poetry in our, in our politics again. I mean, not a Twitter dumpster fire. We, I agree. And, and part of that poetry is acknowledging that when we take in um, the dispossessed, have a fair expectation that they are going to reciprocally honor the dignity of our country, our, our history, our language. And I know that that is what, I think that's what needs to be articulated, is that we honor the dignity of every immigrant, of every color, of every income bracket, of every language, and that they, in turn, acknowledge our, our dignity and want to advance our dignity as a country. And no one is giving voice to that right now. Well, it, it, is, it is a, to the extent that nationalism is demonized, it is, an, it is a way of framing pride and patriotism <laughs> that is generous to we the people of immigrants and we the people of all these generations. 
Yes, and you know, in fact, one of the things about America that struck you as a struck me as a newcomer is, um, and I came 20 years ago, and by and large, it continued, was actually the absence of nationalism, uh, of forced nationalism. But what you saw were the American flags just hanging above pe people's porches, or um, portraits of the presidents cut out of the magazine and taped in school classrooms, not handed out like portraits of, you know, um, Brezhnev or Gorbachev. So this was there was this organic feeling of people loving their land. And um, and this, what is coming out of this administration under the guise of patriotism, is not patriotism. Uh, it is something uh, that is forced, that, and this rhetoric of being un-American. Uh, now it is used to uh, single out people whose point of view you don't like and you just throw labels. Oh, that's un-American to say that. I have never heard the word un-American until recently. What does that even mean? And so I think Americans, one of the things that I don't want to see happening in this country is um, the uh, hijacking of who can be, who is patriotic and who is not, who loves the country and who does. We all love this country. And if we don't wrap ourselves in an American flag, that doesn't mean we don't love it. But it's just that, you know, my grandfather taught me when I was very little that love is shown when uh, you act. It's not that you come and hug your mother and say, oh, I love you. It's more like your actions. And has this administration really shown any much love? I mean, have they made us safer through control of guns or have they uh, welcomed immigrants? So, but it's, there is an attempt to hijack, we love our country and these people don't. And it is not true. I think we're all patriots. We're all, America has always been an idea. Right, it's not a place, it's an idea that everybody who comes here can pursue happiness, be treated fairly, and play nicely and contribute to our shiny city on the hill. On that note, Anastasia, thank you for being here today. Okay, thank you, it's a pleasure. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time for a thoughtful excursion into the world of ideas. Until then, keep an open mind. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Anne Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.